And, and amen. You guys can have a seat. I tell you, um, it is an honor to be here. I just want to take 30 seconds to say thank you to Holmes Avenue Baptist Church for the privilege it is to gather with you this evening and just worship, yes, a newborn Savior, but also to worship the King of Kings. I love Brian Ayer. We go way back, and it's just a beautiful thing that God has done that would allow us to worship together and celebrate Christmas Eve with you guys. Now, I don't know about you, but Christmas Eve for me takes me back. There's a little bit of nostalgia associated with Christmas Eve for me. I mean, yes, we are worshiping Jesus, and yes, we are worshiping the birth of the King. But I remember as a kid, right, right, going to Grandma's house, going to Grandpa's house, and having Christmas Eve dinner. I remember going to services like this and going to Christmas Eve services. I remember then going home and getting to open up one gift before Santa came. And it was the same gift every year. It was the pajamas that mom wanted to take a picture of us in. But it was still fun to be able to take that picture and be able to open up that gift before Santa actually came. And then even before we were saved, I remember hearing scripture like this on Christmas Eve. And it didn't make much sense to me then. But it does a little more now. Isaiah 9, 6. And this will be familiar. It says, for, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, listen to this, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then this one, Prince of Peace. And I'd always wonder what that meant as a kid because, I mean, even I could look around at eight, nine, ten years old at the world and say, well, well peace is not on earth, so what does that mean? Uh, but, but I look back at Christmas Eve, and I look back at Christmas, and there were moments of peace. Like, I remember the dinners, right, with family, and it was such a peaceful time. I remember sending the Christmas cards and that picture on the Christmas card. It doesn't matter how many times it took to actually make the picture, but it looked peaceful when you got it, right? It was just one of those peaceful moments of Christmas. But then I also can remember some awkward moments of Christmas that weren't so peaceful, I remember Katie and I's first Christmas as a husband and wife. Katie is my wife. And um, about 20 years ago, it was her first Christmas, my first Christmas as husband and wife. And that same year, three of her other sisters had gotten married. So we had a Babbitt's family Christmas up in Greenville, South Carolina. And I remember the other son-in-laws, who were probably favored more than me, had given their wives great gifts, like jewelry, and they were sentimental gifts, and they were great gifts. And I remember Katie was just sitting there with expectation, anticipation of this gift that I was going to give her. And I remember looking back, I really did try. Like, I tried to think about this gift. I shot for this gift. I got second opinions on this gift. And I remember there was so much peace at the moment. <laughs> It wouldn't last long. As Katie began to open up her gift, I saw the look on her face. It was utter disappointment. Then it was hurt. Then it was embarrassment. Then it was tears. And peace had left the building. I had bought my wife. You probably wonder what was the gift. It was this gorgeous baby blue business suit slash skirt that had shoulder pads in it. And apparently, shoulder pads had gone out of style like 10 years before, but nobody told me that. Katie told me that night. But peace was lost. Peace was lost that Christmas, our first Christmas ever. And it was an awkward whole day and a half until I finally realized my mistake. But here's, 
Here's the thing. Maybe your awkward Christmas moments aren't as funny. Maybe your awkward moments are around the Christmas dinner table. There's that whole parent-child thing that goes south sometimes, and yet we got to put on plastic smiles around Christmas time when forgiveness needs to be extended. But it hasn't been, so it's just this awkward moment. So many wives and, and husbands will open up gifts just like Katie and I did. But this year, you'll open it up and you'll put on the smiles for your kids, even though there's tension and there's awkwardness because peace was long gone. Puts that whole, he's the prince of peace in perspective. I want to share with you just real quick in two minutes the most awkward moment in human history and how it ties into Christmas. You ready for this? The most awkward moment in human history comes out of Genesis chapter 3. It was just after Adam and Eve had done the one thing God asked them not to do in the Garden of Eden. They ate the fruit from the one tree they weren't supposed to, and then God confronts them. Let me read this, and I just want you to imagine how awkward it would be if you were Adam and Eve. Here it is, verse 8. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I bet they did. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He knew where he was. He just wanted some confession. Verse 10. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Imagine the awkward moment. Number 11, verse 11, and he said, God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And of course God do. Verse 12, the awkward moment continues. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from uh, the tree and I ate. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, the awkward moment never ends. What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And this awkward moment, which signifies the peace that had been broken between mankind and God. This moment that signifies the need for a Savior to come and bring peace between God and man. It puts it in perspective when it says, And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Luke chapter 2, when the baby is born, they're singing glory to God in the highest. Listen to this. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So the question I want to leave with you is this. If there's, in, if there's peace that is lost between mankind and God, if there's peace that is lost between you and God and me and God, how does he go from this to being the prince of peace? And if peace only exists on those whom his favor rests, how do you know his favor rests on you? As Jesus would move past the manger and he would grow to be a man, he would begin a ministry on this earth. And this ministry, he would call to himself 12 men to be his disciples, who he would tell them the ways of God. He would tell them of the coming kingdom. He would tell them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by him. But Jesus, after those three or so years of his ministry, at one point he would be betrayed by one of those followers that would lead him to the cross. In the Old Testament, there's many, many prophecies that lead up to Jesus. 
Matter of fact, the entire Bible speaks about Jesus from beginning to end. There would be many prophecies that would point to the manger, and there are many prophecies that would point to the cross and Jesus' resurrection. One of those prophecies is in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, and it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, that one disciple, his name was Judas, that betrayed Jesus. Because there were religious leaders at the time, the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they, they didn't like the following that Jesus was getting. It made them uncomfortable because they saw that they were following all the things that the law told them. They were doing everything that they should be doing. But here's the problem. They had a very good head knowledge, but their hearts were very twisted. And they heard all these things about Jesus, and they didn't like what they were hearing. And so they conspired this plan to have Jesus arrested. And Jesus was arrested after being betrayed by that follower. Jesus would go and have two illegal trials, one in ecclesiastical before the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then another, a civil trial before Pilate. And those same religious leaders would stand there and they would yell, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus would be sentenced to death. And Jesus, after being sentenced to death, would go to the cross. And why the cross? The cross was a very gruesome, gruesome death. The cross would be the place where after being mocked and spat on and beaten, he would be flogged, the scripture says. And I know this is a gruesome scene, but it's the truth of God's word because it tells us what the Savior did for us. A cat of nine tails would whip onto his body and pull off his flesh. And to a point to where Jesus would take the cross to Calvary, to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would be nailed to that cross, would be poured out on him. Now, as Jesus is nailed to that cross, and he's standing there, and he's looking upon the people that are killing him, he stands there, and in Luke chapter 23, verse 34a, it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These people are killing Jesus, yet he says, Father, forgive them. That's the purpose of why Jesus came, was to offer forgiveness. You may say, well, Brian, why do I need forgiveness? I'll tell you why you need forgiveness. In the book of Romans chapter 3, 21 through 23, the Apostle Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, there's nothing that Brian Eyre can do to earn favor with God because my sin that Adam just clearly laid out for us from Genesis 3 separates me from God. There is nothing that you can do to earn favor with God. Just like in the Old Testament when they would have to offer clean sacrifices to God, there needed to be one clean, perfect, spotless lamb that would have to be sacrificed on the cross to make the way between man and God right again. And that was God's redemptive plan, was for Jesus to go to that cross. In fact, Scripture tells us just a little bit later in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he, for our sake, he made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on that cross became sin. Doesn't mean that he sinned. He's still the perfect spotless lamb. That is the whole point of why the sacrifice is very important for us. But while he's on that cross, he became sin, bearing the weight of our sin. God's wrath poured out on him. Where that wrath should have been poured out on Brian Eyre. That wrath should have been poured out on fill in your name. That wrath was reserved for us, yet God did it to Christ Jesus. And after that wrath was poured out on Jesus, and he was taken off of that that cross after he died, he was placed into a borrowed tomb that wasn't even reserved for himself. A stone was rolled in front, and those same religious leaders thought, we've done it. We've silenced him finally. It's done. It is finished. Yes, it is finished. Because death was defeated in that moment on the cross. And three days later, Jesus would raise from the grave. He is resurrected, he is ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father until the day he returns, interceding on behalf of the saints. He intercedes on our behalf. Now this forgiveness, this whole point of why the cross took place, the whole point of why Jesus took on our wrath on that cross was so that you may have the opportunity to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Scripture says if you do that, then you shall be saved. There is a promise of eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord forever, proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But what it takes is understanding that our sin separates us from God and that forgiveness is freely offered to us because of the blood of Jesus that was poured out at Calvary. All we must do is understand our sin separates us from God. Understand that we need a perfect Savior to stand in our place, and that Savior is Jesus. My prayer for every single one of us tonight is that we can truly say, going into Christmas morning, that the greatest gift that was ever given was Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ, and I can profess that He is Lord. I pray that that is what you would profess today. At this time... We're going to move into our time of the Lord's Supper. And Adam's going to come forward. I'm going to ask our servant leaders to come forward and those that I've asked to help in this. And as they're coming down, I'm going to turn things over to Adam for this portion. To celebrate the coming Messiah going from the cradle to the cross and to observe the Lord's Supper. But Paul says this, and I want you to lean in just for a second. If you're a follower of Christ, what the Scripture teaches is that communion, the Lord's Supper, is for you. If you're here today and you're a guest or you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're window shopping Christianity, maybe you're thinking about it, wrestling with God, but you're not quite there yet, I want to ask you to sit this one out. But if you are a follower of Christ, here's what I'd also ask you to do, what the Apostle Paul asked us to do. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, listen, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or woman must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here in just a few minutes, the servant leaders will be passing out the communion cups and the bread. I'd like you to take a time of just personal reflection and prayer. 
Again, communion is for repentant believers, not perfect believers. They don't exist, but repentant believers. If you're here tonight and something was said, the gospel was tugging at your heart, the Lord was tugging at your heart, and you came in here not knowing if you're a follower of Christ, but something's happened, you want to become a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to let this be your first public proclamation of your new faith by observing the wine and observing the bread in remembrance of what Christ did for you. The servant leaders will be passing out the cup and passing out the bread. During that time, I want to ask you to reflect, to pray, to examine your heart, as Paul tells us to do.